This podcast was produced on the lands of the Bunurong, Wurundjeri and Gadigal peoples of the Kulin and Eora nations. The Pierce Project wishes to acknowledge them as the traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome to Peers, a podcast by BIPOC founders for BIPOC founders. I'm Michelle Akidnor, proud biracial Australian and Forbes 30 Under 30 lister, and I'm your host and fellow peer. Join me for soul-enriching conversations with like-minded young BIPOC entrepreneurs from around the globe. Each week, I dive deep into the personal journey of my award-winning guests and unpack who they really are at their core and how they got started in business. With every episode, my mission is to empower you, expand what you think is possible, and hopefully make you feel less alone as a person of colour in business. Thank you so much for being here, peers. Hey, peers, and welcome to the podcast. It's funny, I was in a meeting the other day with a client pitching them a podcast. And for those of you who don't know, that is what I do. Every day, day in, day out, I pitch podcasts to brands. It is a hell of a lot of work and a hell of a lot of fun. And sometimes it can just get really frustrating heading into pitch meetings where you've developed the concept and you're really proud of what you've pulled together. You've thought about what the objections are going to be from the client around, you know, why they should do this or why they shouldn't do this. And it's interesting because I absolutely have grown to love sales and love pitching. And as an entrepreneur, as we all know, that is pretty much 80% of our job. But in this specific pitch meeting, I just felt this client wasn't having a bar of it. You know, they just were not about a podcast. They were giving all of the objections you could possibly think of. And as much as we were so enthusiastic, every time they would say something negative or provide us with objections, it still hurt. It still was frustrating. And I remember getting off the call and I just felt so deflated. For context, I'm in pitch meetings at least three times a week. And sometimes when you get rejected over and over and over again, you begin to wonder, am I doing something wrong? Is it me? Am I even worthy? And it's honestly it can feel like the worst feeling in the world. But my conversation with today's guest reminded me that the more we get rejected, the closer we get to a win. And it was exactly what I needed to hear when we recorded this episode. And so today's guest is fellow BIPOC founder, Forbes 30 Under 30 lister, Wen Miao Yu. So Wen Miao co-founded a company called Quantum Dice It's an Oxford University spin-out that specializes in encryption through the use of quantum technology. Translation, 
where Meow's focus is on translating specific innovations into marketable products. And in our chat today, we talk about how powerful rejection can actually be, the importance of practicing patience and mindfulness, and how we can all make our own luck whilst continuing to push forward despite the odds. I really hope this chat resonates with you all as much as it did me. And I hope it helps you and reminds you that rejection is normal and that it's not the end of the world. It's definitely something that I needed reminding of. And as always, peers, before we dive in, I just absolutely love your support. And I would absolutely love if you could please leave me a rating and a review and follow us on Instagram. We're at The Peers Project. I know there are so many podcasts out there these days. And so I so appreciate it that you choose to tune into mine and to support peers and support me. So please do hit subscribe and follow us here on the app and also over on Instagram. It means the world. Without further ado, take a listen to today's chat. I am a chemist by training, but I'm currently working as an entrepreneur in the field of quantum technologies. We are enabling data security by leveraging quantum physics and creating a product called a quantum random number generator. My role is more on the commercial side, so I focus on fundraising as well as creating a market for quantum technologies. And that sort of work, I am a very, very keen baker, reader, and also cyclist. Oh, Baker? I mean, stop it. (laughs) That's very, very cool. And what you do in your business seems absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to get deeper into it. But before we do, I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, because I really think it allows us to get to the core of who we are as entrepreneurs. And so that question is, where did you grow up? And how has this impacted choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? I grew up in four different places and the movement in between the different countries actually played a lot into why I decided to choose an entrepreneurial career. I was born in China, lived there until I was five and then moved with my family to Singapore where I went to primary school and because moving once wasn't enough we then moved to Australia. So I spent a year living in Perth it was between the ages of eight to nine. I absolutely loved it because it was so sunny and the education system was completely different to in Asia. And then moved back to Singapore and then came to the UK finally when I was 10 and we've been here ever since. So I think for me, having grown up and having, I guess, before the age of 10, experienced so much movement and so many opposing cultures and different languages, that's really instilled in me a love for change, but also this love for constant learning and I think that ability and the opportunity to constantly be learning something new be problem solving is what really drives entrepreneurs. So well put you know I can only imagine though moving between all of the countries perhaps a level of confusion or maybe just who am I and where do I belong you know did that ever come up for you and if so how did you navigate through that? 
Mm, I think that definitely came up for me because I remember going back to the China for a summer holiday in my teens and meeting kind of my parents' friends who of course had children my age as well meeting other people my age and I would always get the sense that I didn't really quite fit in because although I spoke Chinese it still wasn't the same type of Chinese and the colloquial terms that children my age would use wasn't one that I would have picked up by just speaking to my parents or kind of living overseas and not being exposed to a popular culture. So whenever I went back to China, I felt that I looked the same as everyone else and I could speak the same language and I could, you know, order food, go and see movies, but I think the cultural difference is still there. But of course, in the UK, which is where I spent most of my childhood, I look visibly different from a lot of people in the town that I grew up in. But I grew up with the English culture and I watched the same movies, I read the same books, I listened to the same music, about the same stories in the news growing up. So I think for me, there's always been this constant, I guess, this really delicate tension of different cultures. And it was really only when I went to university and met some other British-born Chinese friends who I felt that I actually met a group of people that I could just instantly connect with. And that's because they also grew up, you know, in a primarily family environment where it's predominantly Chinese cultures. You speak Mandarin or Cantonese at home, but of course, every day at school, they would be speaking English and the types of games, conversations would be Western. So I think that nuance and that hybrid sense of identity is something that I've had to discover and learn about myself over the past few years. So resonate with that. I think I'm not Chinese, although, you know, I have spent a bit of time there and I think that just is such a different way of life and living. And it fascinates me every time I go back. But I think for you and for so many of our peers out there listening, that kind of different cultures and that hybrid approach, I think for so many of us who are biracial or whatever it may be, or just, you know, have grown up across different countries, it definitely plays a role. You know, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who are struggling with that identity piece, who are struggling to figure out where they fit in and how they can get to know themselves? You know, what advice would you give to us? The concept that really helped me is actually realising that I can allow two parts of myself to exist at the same time and to allow both strands of my culture, so my I guess, my own culture and the culture that I was born with to coexist with the culture that I grew up in. I think that's really useful. And, of course, I guess what I did, which I also found really helped, but then again, this is down to personal circumstances as well, is I was really fortunate and I was able to get some funding after leaving university. And I used that to do a self-proposed study on the collective identity of second-generation Chinese immigrants in Europe. And we had conversations about food, family, relationships, identity. And I think for me, going through that process, it was very cathartic. And it allowed me to realise that there's a group of people, there's a certain culture that I do belong with. Because I felt so comfortable with a lot of the people that I met whilst I was doing that research, although they were complete strangers. And we were connected because we were all kind of similar in having shared that experience of being second or one and a half generation Chinese immigrants living overseas. How cool is that, that you got to go and do that? For our peers out there listening who haven't had the opportunity to almost reconcile that within themselves, what advice would you give to us around getting there? Have as many conversations as possible. I'm not sure how you found your personal journey, but I think for me it's 
having as many conversations with people who have gone through similar experiences, but also those who haven't gone through similar experiences. Love that. I want to talk a little bit about your time at Oxford. You said that, you know, as soon as you got to university, you found your people and feel somewhat at home, I guess, with these people. You know, what was that transition like from kind of high school growing up and into heading to Oxford and finding your people? What was that transition period like for you and how did you navigate through that time? Well, it was definitely a time of significant change in the time when I grew up. In my entire year, I was one of three people of colour. And then going to university, that felt completely different because there were international students, you know, not just from Asia, but from Australia, from the US, from different parts of Europe. And it was such a melting pot of different experiences, different personalities, different cultures, all in one year. And in Oxford, so for me, it was really refreshing. And for me, it also made me realise how much more there is for me to learn as well about other cultures and also about the accepted norms that different cultures would have in terms of doing things and how they would approach problem solving as well. What were some of those things that you had to accept that you saw that you hadn't previously seen and kind of hadn't been accustomed to? Well, I think the biggest difference actually came through working with some of my co-founders right now because I have five co-founders for the company and we all come from different nationalities, so there's five nationalities. And I think for me, I grew up in an environment where, you know, for me, I like having things organised, I like knowing a clear roadmap and following that process. But with some of my co-founders, I think they grew up in completely different environments, and for them it's very much about, okay, we have this idea of where we want to get to, let's just try things, we can iterate, and if we make mistakes, fine. So I think for me, that was a very different approach. But of course, a combination of those two approaches is really needed to help a business succeed because there needs to be fearless trial of new ideas, new approaches, but also a steady process that runs in the background to make sure that the cogs keep turning and to make sure that we're able to deliver, to make sure that there's constant progress being made. Oh, it's such a big one you just brought up there, Wemia. I think so many of us find that whether it is, you know, at work or within our startups or, you know, in our co-founders, you know, how do we get better at navigating those different personality types and almost customs and ways of doing things when we just want to do it our way, (laughs) you know? It's so tempting, isn't it, to almost resort to the default, which is, each of our own personal preferences and each of our own personal habits. I think what really helped me and my co-founders is actually realising that, okay, people do things differently and that's fine. And there isn't a right or wrong. And there isn't necessarily a way to do things that's always going to be right in all the different scenarios to solve all the problems. I think the first step is actually realising that the way that each of us approach problems or do things is very unique to ourselves, our culture and as our upbringing. And then the second step is then to be willing to try things with other people and to be willing to let things fail if it doesn't work the first time. I think what I've really learned and what I've really appreciated from all of my co-founders is actually we give each other or so much room to do things the way that we normally do, approach it, but also we give each other so much room to fail and to innovate as well. And I think that patience that we have with each other is quite a critical part of almost any core team. How do we get better at being patient 
with ourselves, the process, and the people around us. That's such a good question. And I really wish I was a master. For me, what I try to do, and it's definitely something that I have to continuously remind myself to do, is to just be mindful of this. I think it's easy in a tough situation, for example, to lose patience and to lose mindfulness. But then normally that leads to quite rash decisions being made, which doesn't always have good effects. But I think from the team that I've been working with, and I also from other very high-performing teams that I know of, it's always having that self-awareness and that self-control to be mindful of these situations. Has there been a time for you where you know, maybe you were under pressure or stress with the business or studies and you just weren't mindful and you just struggled to get there? You know, maybe you were aware of not doing it, but you almost were resisting it. Has that ever happened for you or come up for you in your journey? And how have you navigated through that? Definitely. I think it's come up for me through my education when things were stressful at university before exams. This has, of course, come up with me in the really early days of building a startup when there was so much uncertainty and there was also a pandemic. It was just quite a combination of things to happen at once. I think I've realised over the past few years that sometimes when things get really difficult or when I'm faced with a really stressful situation, I tend to retreat and I go completely silent. I do realise myself doing this and I do try to work to not let it happen, but that is just something that I've accepted that I naturally default to. I think thinking back to university days when it was just me facing exams, if I was stressed, that's fine because the only other person that I would affect is myself. But I've realised you know, now I work with a team, I can't just shut down. I need to at least communicate that I'm going to take, they're going to need a few minutes by myself to just calm down, process things, and then go back to hurry on problem solving. But I think it's that part of remembering to communicate my own needs with the team around me that's super important, and that's what I'm still working on to this very day. Aren't we all... You know, how can we get better at communicating our needs? Well, I think part of it is up to us to control it. It's kind of remembering that we need to do that and remembering why we need to do that for the benefit of those people around us. But I actually think the other part of it is down to the people who we are going to be communicating our needs to. And I think having a colleague or a friend or an ally you feel safe communicating these needs too, just makes the whole process easier for both parties. Then if it is, for example, a really distant manager who perhaps doesn't pay as much attention to each of these colleagues' well-being. So I think it is a two-party problem. And I think as a society and as a group of people, it's something that we all need to work to be more mindful and to be quite proactive in enabling. I want to dive a bit into the early days of the business. You mentioned COVID and the struggle there, but I think, you know, when you think back to that time, I'd imagine you would have had so many options. You know, you were at Oxford, you could have gone out there and been whoever and done whatever, but you chose to start your own business and you chose to kind of go down that path while still studying. I think it was in your final year. Can you talk to us a little bit about that decision there and the very early stages of getting your business off the ground? I think for me, I went to university to study chemistry because I like 
the subject when I was still at school. I loved doing experiments. I was always quite interested in maths and those all the sciences. But I actually kind of took my time at university to really do different societies and to do different internships to help myself figure out where my skill sets were and also what I wanted to be doing straight after university that would be able to a best utilize my skill sets but also be allow me to have as many opportunities as possible to push myself and to learn. So at university I remember doing research internship for the summer in my first year in a biochemistry lab and although I found the science and working with the new people in that lab quite interesting I very quickly realized that it wasn't really in my nature to spend the rest of my working life in a lab doing experiments because I missed that interaction with people and I missed also seeing where all of these scientific innovations can go. And so in my second year at university in the summer, I did a summer internship at a patent attorney's firm. And it was here that I was actually first introduced to the process of how scientific innovation was translated into products and how the commercialization aspects of it was created. So I found it really interesting, but of course, I was only in my second year, and most of these internships only last a week or two. But I think having spent a week or two in this environment, that's made me eager to learn a bit more about, okay, so amazing research is being done at universities, sometimes they turn into patents, and sometimes these patents are then licensed out to smaller companies or to larger companies for use, invent, and build better products. But then from a larger company's perspective, how do they actually from a business standpoint, integrate these technologies? How does it affect different stakeholders in the organisation? And then how do they work with the university itself towards? And so in my third year, I did quite a long summer internship for Centrica, which is quite a large organisation here in the UK that owns British Gas. But I was basically based in the digital procurement team. And this team was quite interesting because A, it's quite fast-paced, it's different to traditional procurement, which is mainly kind of based on fleets and more kind of traditional business goods. But industrial procurement is very fast-paced. It's really looking at cutting-edge technology, running vendor shortlists, and by working with some of the people there, some of my mentors there, I was able to see how pitches were done by some of the smaller vendors who wanted to sell into a large organisation. Then I was able to gain an understanding of the duration of the timescales what it takes for a large organisation to procure new technology. And then after that, I went back to university still, not really having found the job that I wanted to spend my first few years after university doing. And I think part of that is because I really appreciate having autonomy. I love having the ability to problem solve and to design experiments almost to test my own hypothesis by myself and I like having that degree of flexibility and freedom to spend time myself solving problems rather than just being told what to do and at the same time of course a lot of my friends were in the US and there was such an amazing ecosystem of undergraduate founded startups raising venture capital funding who then go on to do amazing things and create such value for the local community by creating more jobs and then sometimes even expanding overseas. And so in my last year, almost by chance, I think my university created its first ever student entrepreneurship program. And this was a four-week program that was run by our university's technology transfer department called Oxford University Innovation. And it was also funded by our local venture capital firm called Oxford Science Enterprises. And the premise of this program was that over four weeks, any student from any discipline, whether they're 
undergrads, master's students or PhDs could all come to join this program. They had access to quite an extensive list of university technology that has been patented. And then they also received training on a daily basis on how to build a business model, how to do market research, how to reach out to customers, how to pitch to investors, how to do financial forecasts. So it was very much like an intro level to how to become an entrepreneur. And so during that program, I met my four other co-founders and we all met and created Quantum Dice because we all wanted to work with this particular piece of technology that was the self-certifying quantum random number generator. We all come from either physics, mass or chemistry backgrounds. So I think we all had a basic understanding of the technology, the fundamental science behind it, but also why it could be important in modern-day cybersecurity. And so we then spent the four weeks in that program working very closely together. We reached out to some initial contacts in industry to ask for their opinion on a product. And then we pitched to the directors from Oxford University Innovation, as well as some of the investors from Oxford Science Enterprises, who then awarded us the prize, which gave us a very initial amount of funding to allow us to begin developing our first quantum number generator prototypes. And by the time that this program had finished, myself and one of my other co-founders had also just graduated from university. And almost by chance, I think it was in the middle of doing this awesome program, some of the centre managers for the Quantum Technology Enterprise Centre that's based in Bristol, and to give some context, this is the UK's only fully funded quantum technology startup incubator. So it was the ideal place for us to go to next. They were visiting Oxford to learn about the startup ecosystem there. And they were, of course, introduced to the student group Quantum Dice who were working on quantum technologies. And so the centre managers told us about this fellowship that they had. And this fellowship would give salary to co-founders as well as a really generous business development grant to allow us to do more market research, to go to conferences, as well as to begin building more of our product. And so my co-founder, George, and I both applied for this fellowship and were both awarded this fellowship. And in November that year, we moved to Bristol and we joined a cohort of 10 other early quantum technology entrepreneurs who were also from a similar academic background and went through this program with them. And I think how I would describe the program at the QTech Centre in Bristol is very much a mini MBA. But it was amazing because they had ex-entrepreneurs in technology, some even in hardware technology, come and mentor us and really share their experiences. So it really gave us a good foundation to begin our entrepreneurship journey. But it also gave us access to an amazing cohort of other entrepreneurs, many of whom I'm still in contact with now and some of whom I even see on conferences across the globe. So it's kind of an incredible opportunity and really such luck that we were able to all meet through this student program at Oxford and then go on to a industry-focused startup incubator and then raise funding. And then now, nearly four years later, we're still active. We now have our own office and lab space in central Oxford. We now have a headcount of 18 people with two new hires joining yesterday. That's really exciting. And I think from my point of view, it's just so satisfying to have created something from the ground up with literally no funding and to have gone through this amazing process of learning and entrepreneurship in the meantime. 
I literally have no words. It's literally a dream and it's so cool to see and I'm so bloody happy for you. It's such a tough thing to start a business, to do anything on your own and to see it through. For our peers out there listening who might just think, oh, but she's so lucky, you know, she just got this. She met all her co-founders and then she got this grant and then she got into the incubator and then, and then, and then. What would you say to us around the dark side of business or the tough aspect of all of this? Something that we don't often talk about. What did that side of it look like for you? And how were you able to, quote unquote, make your own luck to get to where you are today? I'm really glad that you asked that. I think it's really interesting because one of my mentors, who's an ex-entrepreneur herself at the Tech Center, actually said that as an entrepreneur and in business, no one sees the scars that you're left with, but they only see the success. And I guess from my personal experience, when we were fundraising, because we were first-time founders and was COVID, that extra bit more difficult to fundraise. And I think we spoke to over 100 different investors before finding the final group that we ended up choosing to work with. And that basically means we received nearly 100 rejections. And this happened almost on a twice weekly or sometimes even on a daily basis over a period of five months. And I think looking back now, it really has a lot to do with the diversity and character in our founding team that we all managed to stay together over that period because this was all completely remote over covid and receiving rejections is pretty difficult for a pitch or a business plan that you've put together yourself it just feels that little bit more like a personal rejection any entrepreneur out there would probably agree and say that there are probably multiple times in running their company no matter what stage it is where it's hard days where they feel like giving up but I think we all just have to remember when it's one of those days that we chose not to it's okay to think about it but every time the thought has crossed my mind anyway I must have made a conscious decision to not give up because I'm still here today and it's just something I have to keep remembering. How do we keep going when we feel like we have nothing left to give and have been banging our head against the wall for months on end you know how do we keep going in those dark times? Plan breaks (laughs) honestly taking a break you know I've been an entrepreneur for nearly four years now and the first two and a half years Building a company, it was my entire focus from almost from the moment that I woke up and the moment that I went to sleep every day. And I think I kept myself kind of in check by just, you know, going outside, going for walks, going for cycles. That really helped because I think just physical movement helps to turn my mind off and it allows me a bit of a rest. But I think now that the company is a little bit more established, of course, it's still quite young. But I think for us as founders and in terms of how we interact with our employees, we always say, you know, we know that this is quite a fast-paced working environment. It's a very young startup. And we can see everyone putting so much effort into making this work. And this just makes us so happy. But we also say, if you need time off, just take it. Because it's better to take, you know, three or four days out to rest, recharge, and then come back feeling fresher, having more energy, than to keep pushing through two, three, four times in two or three months, and then ending up almost burning out and needing to take a much longer time out. I think one of the other things that our mentors have said is 
building our company is a marathon, not a sprint. I don't think I really appreciated that when I first started, but now I definitely do. Oh, it always just takes that little bit longer (laughs) to really get your head around that marathon, not a sprint. So well said. But yeah, this has just been so interesting, so insightful. And I just so appreciate you opening up with me and with us about your journey thus far. And I have a couple of final questions for you. The first one is, and we spoke about this quite a bit up front, but I just want to cap this off. This podcast is by BIPOC founders for BIPOC founders. You know, for you as a BIPOC founder, how has your culture helped or hindered you along the way? Well, I think for me, my culture has helped along the way because in the culture that my parents raised me up to, giving up was just never an option. And that grit, that perseverance was always drilled into me from a very young age. And I think even now, I think a lot of my peers, they probably say that when I do things, I'm very focused. And then if I say I do something, then I will follow through and deliver on that. But I think where my culture has potentially come me back is I think the cultural norms in terms of how we interact and how we present ourselves is very different in China as to compared in, say, the US or UK. In China, I think there's very much a natural deference to those who are a bit older than you or who perhaps have more of an established work environment than you. Whereas I think in the US and in the UK, it's less of a collective focus, but more of an individualistic focus. And I think for me, it was quite terrifying. It was what was equal parts terrifying and equal parts refreshing to realise that my opinion does matter and I can just tell people about it and I won't be told off for doing so. So liberating. You know, it's been just over four years since you started your company and since you went out on your own. You've really gone from strength to strength in amongst all of the challenges, the struggle that is business and just everything that we have to go through as founders. You've also, in amongst this, received a lot of recognition for your work. And most notably, you were featured on the 2023 Forbes City Under 30 list, which is how we found you. What are three key pieces of advice that you would give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? The advice I would give is really play to your strengths. And if you don't know what your strengths are, just try new projects that you wouldn't normally go for because you'll learn so much about yourself, whether you succeed or whether you fail along the way. The second piece of advice is keep a really close group of family and friends who really, really have your back. Because I guess as an entrepreneur, as you will know as well, some days can be really tough. And some days you just want people that you can vent to and for them to listen and really know that they have your back. I think that does wonders for mental well-being. And I think it's something that's just so, so, so crucial. And the last piece of advice I would give is actually being able to walk away from things that you find is no longer pushing you as much as you thought it would or challenging you to learn as much as it originally was. I think what I've done over the past few years is that experiences, they can all have a certain lifetime. And if you outstay that lifetime, then really you're not adding any more value to that experience and you're also not learning any more from that. So well said. 
in what way have you shifted or melded what you do now in your business or in your personal life to kind of expand yourself, to keep challenging yourself so as to not stay stagnant or feel like you're stuck? So I think for me, two things. The first thing is I have a group of, I say around three or four people who are my mentors and they are very, very brutally honest people. If they feel that I'm not pushing myself, they will tell me. If they feel that I've done well, they will also tell me. But having that group of mentors who can give me honest feedback and who care enough about my development to also keep pushing me was so important. Having that group of mentors also means that there's hopefully a better coverage because I think sometimes I see things my own way and one of my other mentors will see things in a certain way. But there are you know, so many other different perspectives and different areas of a person, whether from a personal or professional front, that needs development. And I think the second part is actually just taking time to reflect upon what has happened and being quite grateful for all the incredible opportunities and all of the incredible learnings that has been able to happen. So well said. Oh, look, Mia, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you before I ask you the final question. For all of the incredible work you've done and that you're doing, you know, for showing us, and particularly us, you know, young BIPOC female founders, that if we have that vision, that goal and that dream, even though we may not know how to go about it, even though we're not sure how to be an entrepreneur or what we're doing, we can go after it. We do have a voice and we do have a say and it's important. And although it may not be easy, it will be worth it. And so for that, we really appreciate you. Oh, Michelle, that's so kind. And I really liked what you said just now about kind of realizing that we do have a voice and our opinions do matter. I think that really says it all. I love it. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? That value to me is something that I now know I need to have in whatever project or whatever new business venture I go into. Personally, for me as a person, I need to feel quite emotionally connected and quite responsible for a certain initiative or a certain project because once I know I've check those two boxes when I know that I will be able to persevere with that particular project no matter what happens. I love it. Oh, Wemiel, we so appreciate you. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely awesome. Where can we learn more about you and Quantum Dice? Well, we are on LinkedIn. Um, Quantum Dice is also on Twitter. I'm not that active on Twitter myself but I think you'll be able to keep up with all the exciting things that's happening across our company there as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. It has been so awesome. No, thank you very much for having me. It's been so fun to have this conversation. Amazing. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Peers. If you're liking what we're doing here and resonate with our mission of amplifying BIPOC founder stories, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Also, head over to our Instagram and follow us. We're at The Peers Project. And you can connect with me personally on LinkedIn and Insta. I'm at Mish Echidinal. I adore you oh so very much, Peers. Until next time.